Good evening, this is Gary Cavanagh here on the right side. Today is Sunday the 15th of March. I have no Michael Dwyer here with me today. I actually don't know where he's gone. Hopefully he's not dead, although if you listen to the last podcast, you will see that he has somewhere in the region of a 9% chance of dying of coronavirus should he contract it. So let us have our hopes and prayers with him in this difficult time, and we will of course retract those hopes and prayers if he has simply gotten drunk or forgotten he's meant to be here right now. So a couple of things to talk about today. I had planned to do something that didn't talk about coronavirus at all because I we can see all of the metrics of what people listen to and what they actually like and coronavirus is what people want to read about and hear about and see about and they have an endless appetite for it. Probably because the fear that you and your loved ones are going to die quite badly sharpens the mind. But I had hoped to talk about something else, even if it's not popular, because frankly there should be a place where coronavirus is not talked about. There is, however, something I did want to talk about in relation to it, and it's in relation to this idea, you've probably seen it, there's graphics been passing around the place, and it's called Flatten the Curve. And it's basically something that's been put out in promotion of social distancing and putting less of a less of a strain on the health service. I think that is a very good idea. However, I've been just I've just been wondering about the numbers for it. So I had a little bit of a look at how many beds we have in Ireland, occupancy rates, how many people we expect to get sick, and how those two things compare to basically see, can you actually flatten the curve enough to avoid what we're seeing in Italy and effectively a catastrophic meltdown and overrun of capacity leading to uh, the heavy triaging of care? And then I suppose it's, it's pretty much linked to the first thing I was talking about. It's the British response to coronavirus. I've seen a lot of people... I've educated people, people who know what they're talking about, saying that the British response to coronavirus is using the language of eugenics. I saw one of my former professors say, not a plan at all, is totally incomprehensible. And I just wanted to very briefly talk about it because there is a plan there, it is comprehensible, it has no relation to the eugenics movement, but it's also a plan that may not be terribly good and could conceivably kill tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And we won't know whether or not it's going to work for a while until it starts dropping people. I also want to talk about the USI, uh, the Union of Students for Ireland. It's a relatively minor story, but there was a, a honeypot account set up by some of the lads in the Birkin. There's an account called Irish Students Against Fascism. Uh, they basically presented themselves as a fascist account, or sorry, as, a, as an Antifa account. I always get those two mixed up. Probably because their methods are so similar. And basically started tweeting out things that were Antifa inclined. And people started reaching out to them. And then they started reaching out to people uh, involved in sort of far left activity. Or who they thought would be sympathetic to far left activity. And asked them if they would contribute to a project that they said they were running. Which was meant to be an online database of students with right wing views on campuses. They also said that they wanted to use this to harass those students, to make them lose their jobs, if they had any. Uh, and in a couple of conversations, they said that they wanted to physically harm those students. So this is effectively an anonymous Twitter account coming out saying it wants to harm students. And it reached out to people like the Union of Students in Ireland, uh, various student unions across the country, a couple of politicians, a couple of reporters. And in a shocking display of ineptitude, People basically lined up to tell them, yeah, 
they'd love to slap around some right-wing students. So let's start with this uh, flatten the curve thing. So the idea here is if too many people get sick at once, the hospitals will collapse, the debt rate will spiral, and things will get rapidly out of hand. Now, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about the hospitals particularly, but when you look at Italy, what seems to be happening and what seems to have caused the massive uptick in their debt rate is that they have a very old population. The initial affections appear to have been people who were of a certain age, The first wave basically overwhelmed the hospitals and there were not enough, um, there were not enough ventilators and things like that to go around. And because of the rates of people who will require that sort of aid, uh, people started dying and they had to do uh, what is called triaging care, which is basically deciding if you have two patients, who do you give uh, the treatment to? And there's different ways of doing that. It's something that medical practitioners have had a great deal of experience in uh, over history, although I wouldn't imagine it ever becomes much easier. And there's different systems you can put in place, ranging from the very simple, who is more likely to survive? Okay, if we can only treat one person, we'll treat them, to more detailed criteria. Uh, in war, you would often see people prioritizing military personnel but you can you can build effectively any system to do it in italy they seem to be basically doing it on survival rates and age people over a certain age very unlikely to get the care that is appropriate and so the flatten the curve thing is is an idea basically designed to stop that but here's the thing it came out in the sunday uh, what was the sunday business post what is now just i believe the business post last week uh, someone leaked to susan mitchell who is i think pretty much certainly the best health uh, correspondent or journalist in the country. She routinely write about things that people should care more about and don't. And basically it was a what I think was a HSE internal projection that said 1.9 million people in this country could be infected. So that effectively half of those cases would take place over a three-week period. Now from what I'm seeing in other countries, the recovery period from COVID-19, if you are hospitalized, depending on the severity, can be two to four weeks, generally three to four weeks, if you're serious enough to uh, end up in hospital. That compares to about a week of discomfort and flu-like symptoms if it's a mild case. So we're talking about 950,000 people infected with COVID-19 within three weeks. Now, here is the problem for the numbers. Ireland has about... The last time I checked, about 11,600 beds, public hospital beds. It has, I think, about 4,000 private beds. Now, depending on what hospital you're in, those beds already have people using them. In a lot of the Dublin hospitals, they're already running over capacity, sometimes to about 120%, which is to say that there are no beds in those hospitals that are empty to be used for other people. The problem we have here is when you look at the actual percentages and the maths behind this. In China... About 15% of all those who contracted COVID-19 required hospitalization, and 5% ended up in critical care, uh, needing ventilators and mechanical breathing. I've seen other things that say up to 20% will will need concentrated oxygen, which will also be an issue. However, if we take that number, so 950,000 people in three weeks, 5% of that is about 47,500, and 15% is 142,500. Irish bed capacity, assuming every one of those beds was free, and every bed had a ventilator, and 
every bed in the private service could be used for this purpose and you could altogether have about 15,000 beds would only be a fraction of that. Which is to say, of that 47,500 over this three-week period, uh, about 32,500 uh, would die because they would not have a bed, they would not have a ventilator, um, and if they need mechanical help with breathing, that's going to be a really big problem if they don't get it. And then if you move on to that, to the 142,500, who will end up... I'm not sure it is possible to flatten the curve to such an extent that the Irish hospital system could avoid collapse, which is uh, problematic if you don't like dying in hospital or at home, because you may get that decision. Now, that is an internal HSE projection, it appears to be. That, I would assume, is their worst-case scenario. But if that scenario is correct and these numbers are correct, I I really don't see how they're going to square that circle. You're looking at a debt toll in the tens of thousands as the very best option. Now, from the statistics we've seen, nearly all of those people are going to be above 60. And I don't, I don't say that in a sort of, well, you know, if you're not elderly and infirm, why should you care? You should care because you can pass the infection on to people who are elderly and infirm. It's just they're the people who are primarily going to die alongside those with uh, underlying conditions. So that is that is the issue. I don't, the numbers, I mean, yes, they'll, they'll take over barracks, they'll put beds there. We're also incredibly lucky in that this country is the producer of... Uh, I think roughly 50% of the world's ventilators. Strangely enough, there is one or two companies in this country that make incredible amounts of them. And so it won't be terribly difficult to get ventilators in this country. And that may be a saving grace there. But uh, yeah, I mean, I would never speak about um, what you should do medically, because I'm not an expert in medical science. I know very little about medical science. But public policy and, and numbers, they're, they are sort of my things. And this looks like a very difficult circle to square, because if, if those infections come in three weeks, the health service can't handle that. It just it can't even approximate handling that. Now, we have, very interestingly, seen the numbers on trolleys fall dramatically in the last couple of weeks. Some people are saying that this is proof that the trolley crisis was never real, that people were just misusing the accident and emergency uh, facilities, and that basically just a load of chancers clogging up the system and taking stuff from everything else. I don't really go that far. I mean, I've, I went to accident and emergency years ago when I fractured my wrist drunkenly. It was entirely my own fault. It was absolutely nothing to do anywhere else, but there was ice and I slipped and I fractured the wrist. And uh, I went into work the next day and they demanded I get a, um, I get it checked out. I, I left because I was there so long, it just seemed absolutely pointless. They still sent me a bill, even though they didn't see me, which, and I told them I was leaving, which was nice of them. But the thing was, I, yeah, I probably should have done something, because I didn't know if, if I had broken the wrist, I couldn't really move it at all. So, yeah, I probably should have been in an accident and emergency by the definition of those terms. But I wasn't going to stick around because the, it was just so miserable. And I think there will be people like that, people with broken bones or with issues where they may have a very legitimate reason to go to accident and emergency and are not doing so because they are so concerned about a potentially uh, fatal virus. So I don't, I don't think it's fair to write off all of the people who 
uh, are now not use, going to A&E as just kind of chancers who've been shown up. But on the other hand, yeah, I'd say a, a good percentage of them were, just not everyone. And so if the numbers don't add up, what do you do with that? And uh, I don't, I don't rightly know. That's always the problem with these things. You can see the issues, but sometimes figuring out how to avoid them is very difficult and may require you basically just rolling the dice. And people don't like that, particularly when people's lives are at risk. But you know, it's a world of largely imperfect information and we choose the best we can and we hope it, uh, it works. And I think that's what the British are doing. The British have taken a very different approach to us. We have settled on a strategy of containment. So we have basically just said that we need to absolutely stop the spread of this virus. And that's how we will keep down the amount of infections, and it's how we'll keep down the hospitalizations, and it's how we will keep the health service from collapsing. Now, if they're projecting 1.9 million people get infected, containment has failed in that case. The problem with the measures, the problem with containment is this. You shut down the schools, you shut down the shops, you shut down public transport, you shut down pubs, which they haven't, but is probably coming. How long can you do that for? Because those things need to eventually reopen. And the concern would be that when they reopen, that infection rates are going to surge. And yeah, you could then go, okay, it's come back, we'll quarantine people again, we'll basically close down the country again. It's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to keep a quarantine in effect because people don't want to obey it, frankly. And there's a u element of human psychology here. Most people can go with, uh, can take very reasonable precautions and can keep themselves safe and be no danger to others. But a single person who doesn't can theoretically spread this to hundreds of people. Now, that would be immensely difficult if mass gatherings are banned. And so the problem then becomes, well, if you contain and uh, you then lift the containment and it spreads again, there's not a lot you can do other than just telling people to keep up social distancing, which, by the way, is a very good idea here. So, and the problem there is we've seen that sort of pattern before. Spanish flu, which is coming up an amazing amount more than I thought it would here, which is a sign of effectively the apocalypse, is what people are talking about. And Spanish flu had waves, basically. So... The second wave of the pandemic, which, for those who don't know, it was, a, it was an influenza pandemic in 1918. It was known as the Spanish flu. It didn't actually originate in Spain, but most countries, in order to avoid panic, uh, put very strict restrictions on the reporting of it, and Spain didn't. So most of the stories about it came out of Spain. And so people called it the Spanish flu, even though it, it was never... The fault of Spain. Continuing our long tradition of naming illnesses after the place they originate from, something which the Chinese government is doing everything it can to now present as racist because they... I think they find it damaging to their prestige if people refer to COVID-19 as the, as the Wuhan coronavirus. Uh, but on the other hand, the Chinese arrested and detained and locked up doctors who attempted to tell the world about the COVID-19 outbreak before it actually spread to other countries and who had the Chinese state not detained them or disappeared them in some cases. The they may have given the world a little bit more warning on this and therefore saved the lives of thousands of people. So the Chinese government can pretty much go fuck itself there. Call it whatever you want. Anyway, so it started in early 1918, January 1918. And it ran to about the end of 1920. 
and it infected a staggering amount of people. It was about, I think at the time it was about 30% of the world. And it killed, there's a great deal of debate about how many people it killed. But in general, people put it, the low range tends to be about 15 to 20 million, and then it can go up. I mean, I've seen people say 100 million, but I don't think that's likely. Um, but, you know, 40 to 60 million, maybe. So it was. it's one of the uh, most deadly uh, pandemics to have in, in recent human history anyway. And the problem there is that it had waves. So it had really uh, three kind of waves. The first wave was relatively light. I mean, not not incredibly light, but relatively light. The second wave was apocalyptic. And then the third wave was pretty bad. It was way worse than the first wave. And I think what the the problem with containment is, is if you see this sort of wave pattern, well, you can't keep this going into wave two. So what the British seem to be doing is going for a strategy of herd immunity. And herd immunity is a fairly non uncontroversial thing. It's pretty much the same thing you see in vaccines. People who are immunocompromised or have certain complications don't cannot get many medical treatments. So if if there are things that can be passed around that they can pick up, they will be far more destructive to them. So people who are healthy get vaccinated or take certain steps, and then they can't be infected. And in that way, there are less people with the infection to infect those who are less healthy. Herd immunity is basically you have enough people in the population who are immune to a condition or to a virus or to whatever. Uh, it cannot easily spread amongst the population. What the British seem to be doing is they want people, they want healthy people to get infected with COVID-19. That is explicitly it. They're letting it spread amongst the population. But what they want is for fragile and vulnerable groups like the elderly or those with compromised immune systems to basically isolate. Instead of the entire country isolating, they want those people to isolate. Because COVID-19, the debt rate for people below, I think, 40 is around the same as the standard flu. And so what they plan there is that they'll slowly start ratcheting up uh, closures, more in line with Europe. But what they are basically appear to be trying to do is get enough of the population to have contracted COVID-19, the segments of the population that are least likely to actually require, require hospitalization, and then basically when that is over, you can then end the isolation of those who are elderly or those who are fragile, and enough of the population will be immune that it cannot uh, spread easily amongst them. And then that would stop you having, uh, so if you saw like a second wave, as you saw with Spanish flu, enough of the population would be immune, and then it wouldn't spread, and yes, people will die, but way less people than if you ran a containment measure and the second wave came and no one was immune to it. That appears to be what they're trying to do. Uh, the problem you have there is that if people don't behave in the way you predict, then it, it goes to the wall fairly quickly. So humans are the first problem. The second problem is that different things that different uh, different things that you can get infected by or that you can contract can give you immunity to that thing. Sometimes they don't, but those immunities don't have to be lifelong. 
So, yes, let's say you get infected with COVID-19. And there are some reports of people being immediately reinfected. I think Japan just had what they refer to as a confirmed case there. But that's, I think, still only one person, although there are reports of more. In which case, if you can get immediately reinfected, you don't become immune to COVID-19 after initial infection. And the British strategy won't work because it's going to be in the population anyway. And it doesn't matter if people have already had it. But it could also be a situation where you are immune to, let's say, COVID-19 for three months, and the next wave comes in December. So you won't be immune to it by then, and you'll effectively have what everyone else has. You'll receive no benefit. So a number of things need to fall in place for the British plan to actually work. Now, if it does work, well then, it will be a fairly... um, it'll become a textbook example of how to deal with a pandemic. If it doesn't work, they'll kill probably hundreds of thousands of people, assuming you have the same sort of levels of infection that the Irish government are predicting in Ireland in the leaked HSE documents, and they don't know. I think this is the the thing to push. They don't know enough about COVID-19 to know if this is going to work, and they don't know if people are going to react in this way, in the way they want, and they'll be able to keep the infection from the old and the compromised and the fragile. And if either of those things go the wrong way, well, the system will be uh, will be fairly undermined. Now, on the other hand, if it turns out that after infection you do not become immune to COVID-19 or you only become immune for a very limited time, every country is going to have a substantial problem because unless you actually manage to eradicate it, as in cut off every infection it's going to come back and if it maintains the same fatality rate it's still going to kill roughly as many people i believe with spanish flu spanish flu mutated between the two waves and when it came back it was just uh it had gone from bad to just world ending kind of thing and i think that that is the important thing to say here Uh, There are a number of experts in Britain who agree with the British government's stance. Britain has quite a lot of expertise in uh, these kind of studies. Problem is, is now they're applying it, and often things that work on paper do not work when you actually try and apply lessons from them, or you try and apply them directly. And that, I think, will be the great problem from England Now, on the other hand, as I said, it could work, in which case it'll be an absolutely brilliant move that will stop England uh, from basically gutting its own economy to stop this thing, which is pretty much what every other country will do when they get to the point of closing everything. I mean, we've already seen restaurants laying off mass amounts of staff because the margins are very thin, it's a very hard uh, sector to be in. And we will also see other businesses go to the wall because there are a lot of businesses who cannot take you know, a six-week or two-month, three-month stoppage. And so, yeah, you come out of that and uh, all your businesses are closed and you've got an unemployment rate of 10% or you know, 15%. We'll see how that one goes. Now, if it's a short stoppage, you'll get around a lot of that. But this is... Uh, a recession would seem to be coming rather sharply which is actually interesting from the american front because i think we've been saying for a while that we thought the only thing that could stop trump was a recession 
and uh, people have been saying there's a session due for years, and we it just didn't seem to be coming. But uh, there's nothing like a global wave of death and disease to get rid of a bull market. So anyway, that is the that is the coronavirus news. The first part is really just my musings on the uh, numbers. If you know anything about that, um, or you've seen anything written on that, any research, which is very light in the ground, do email it in uh, to Gary at Crypt.ie, and I would uh, love to see it. And if I see anything, I'll talk about it on the next podcast. So I, I hate I hate talking about any of this stuff. Um, because so much is up in the air, and so much is unknown, and it's very difficult to say things that are certain, and you don't want to be the person who starts sort of shouting about stuff that turns out to be incorrect. But at the same time, I just, I cannot see how those numbers work. Now, I would point out this fact. If I am right, if I am right, and those numbers don't stick up, and we're looking at a fairly substantial death rate here um there's not a lot people can do about it frankly it's very difficult to change systems like that when italy asked for help from the european union the current reporting says that not a single european country offered the aid uh, of doctors or of medical equipment so if we're hoping that uh, foreign help will come here that may be uh, and the eu will help us that may not be the most likely thing now china did send aid which is very interesting china does seem to have a handle on this situation as does uh, south korea they uh, south korea and singapore have done very very well here south korea it'll be interesting to see when a lot of the restrictions come down do the infections just surge back but we will see it is a um it is an interesting time and I, it's unlikely i mean if we reach the I, if we reach the heights of spanish flu that'll be uh that'll be really interesting if you're not dead. In which case, depending on your views of the afterlife, it could be incredibly interesting. Or uninteresting in the extreme. Moving on to the, the third area I wanted to talk about, which is the, the Birkin sting. I've, I've written a few articles for Gript about this. Um, about the USI vice president who said she'd pass names on to them. Said she was open to help them. They told her they wanted to bug a young Fine Gael meeting in a, what they thought was a private student residence. And the vice president of the USI started telling them who they could talk to for legal advice. Uh, said it was a student-on-student matter. At no point did she try and tell them that, you know, you shouldn't bug a student residence. She resigned, um, I think Friday, maybe Thursday. She resigned and her resignation was accepted by the USI board. They said that her stand, her actions had fallen below the standards they demanded. They announced her resignation in a statement that they put up on Twitter and Facebook, in which they didn't mention her name, and which they uploaded as a image instead that had no text in the uh, the text box. Now that seems like a really minor thing, but that makes it substantially harder for search engines and any sort of archival program uh, where you can do key searches, which is how I find Rita Cronin's tweets from finding it because there's no words there it's just an image so i thought that was a a nice little final gift for michelle byrne who was their vice president the problem i think that they have here for the president who is lorna fitzpatrick is that lorna fitzpatrick is on one of the recordings and says she knows that the group is talking to byrne and the group makes it very clear that they are looking to harm students it's absolutely 
clear. There's no, there's no doubt about it. In fact, when I first heard the recording, I was amazed that people had talked to them, because they sort of go, so we'll like, uh, we'll harass people and we'll, we'll, you know, slap them around, and that's okay with you. And it'd be sort of like someone turning up and just going, "Hello, fellow kids. I enjoy drugs and criminality. Do you enjoy those things too?" And you would think any person, the two brain cells would hit together, they'd spark, and you'd go, you're not a person I should be talking to, because you're either, this is some sort of sting, or you're so stupid, you're just going to end up telling people accidentally everything I tell you. Which I think is the the overwhelming thing here. I mean, they caught some people from the Trinity Student Union, from the Union of Students in Ireland, the head of Trinity's Jewish Society, which was very interesting. And the overwhelming thought here is, well, firstly, these people all seem to actively want to harm students who have different political views from them, which is, considering there's so many are involved in student unions, would really have a question of whether or not students should be forced to fund those institutions, because currently uh, students pay for student unions through their fees. They're given directly to the student union, and it's basically impossible to get out of student unions. So they have your money. And student unions will take positions on abortion, on Israel, on really anything they want. And it doesn't matter if you like it or you support it. They have your money. You can do nothing about it. And unless you want to run for office in the student union, you're not going to get anything done about it. Which, considering it now turns out that some of their top officials are perfectly happy passing on the names of students that they deem problematic to groups which have said they want to uh, violently assault them, may indicate that that situation should change. But the overwhelming thought you get when you, you listen to these states and you listen to these people, there's the old, uh, there's the old Bill, Hick, Bill Hicks joke where he's talking, I think he's talking about someone being fired or leaving. And he just goes, well, I think we can pretty safely say we didn't lose a cancer cure. And that is sort of the overwhelming thing when you're listening to these people talk. There is a sort of, you are either incredibly naive or incredibly stupid. Possibly both of those things. So it's well worth looking out the... Um, going to the Berkian website and checking out the uh, the actual audio. They're releasing a lot of the audio as really large, uh, like you know, 10 minute long chunks, rather than putting them out as small little uh, sound bites that you could look at. I think that's pretty much so that people, purely done, so that people can't accuse them of unfairly editing the audio, which is what people are accusing them of anyway, because it doesn't matter, that was what people were always going to say. And uh, it's well worth having a listen to it. Now, n- no one... No one in the in the mainstream press has picked this up. I mean, I've written, I think, two stories on it. One about uh, Michelle Byrne, the vice president, when the tapes broke. And then one about Lorna Fitzpatrick and her position when Michelle Byrne resigned. Uh, Lorna Fitzpatrick, interestingly enough, is on leave now. Or at least she has told me she's on leave when I emailed her with a series of questions about what exactly she knew about Michelle Byrne's activities and when she knew them. And if she thought her position was tenable, given that her job is to represent all students on campus. And she had said in the recording that in a private capacity, she was perfectly willing to send on this group, which again, had said its purpose was openly harassment and violence. She said she would send on anything that she found on people, as long as it was on a public platform and it was understood to be in her personal capacity. And there's a question of, well, can the president of the Union of Students in Ireland yeah, you have a personal life, but if you're passing on details of students that you've seen on a public forum, can that be said to be in a um, personal capacity? I don't know. I don't. I don't think. Uh, I don't think it really can. 
So it's it's well worth going on to the Birkin Lads website, having a, a look at it, having a listening to it. Um, it is pretty brazen. It's uh, fairly out there. And it is also very clear that they deeply want to, not all of them, they deeply want to hurt students that they don't agree with, hurt them either professionally or academically. And I did think there was one very revealing statement from Jacob Wolf, who is the head of the Trinity Jewish Society. When he was talking to them, he said that classical liberal is something fascists call themselves in order to look normal. So we'll probably do a show actually on on this entire thing, on Antifa versus anti-fascist and what those terms mean. Antifa has a very wide definition of what fascist is. I mean, when you look at the origins of Antifa, uh, anti-fascistic action in Germany, it actually didn't pay that much attention to the Nazi party uh, because it was around at the same time. It actually spent most of its time focusing on the Social Democratic Party because it saw them both as fascist uh, groups effectively as reactionary groups as groups which were capitalistic and fighting against communism so you have a long tradition here of sort of people saying well you know, i'm anti-fascist if you're against me what does that make you but when you look in the history of it there's a sort of it seems that um everyone you don't like is a fascist and it seems just like a, a sort of clever little name you've got there and you have one good line on how well if you're against anti-fascism well then you must be a fascist that kind of falls apart if you can get by the cheap lie or cheap laugh it will give you so yes i think i think we will we will actually do a show on that on the actual history of antifa and what it means to say that someone is involved with antifa and anti-fascist coming from those groups as compared to someone relatively normal who might say that they are against fascism i mean it's usually not something you have to say you're against because you know, there aren't that many fascists around the place. Like, you don't see, outside of maybe the Chinese state, people reading the work of Carl Schmitt and going, you know what, I think we could run a country on this. I mean, there are not people wandering around reading the philosophy of Julius Evola. Or, well, as fascist philosophers go, Julius Evola is not really... Well, the joke is that Evola is the only man who ever called the SS soft, but he was quite esoteric. There are legitimately fascist philosophers who lay out the political theory, although it, it's tended to be an insult for most of its history ever since the Nazis lost the war. Orwell did an excellent essay on it in 1944. I think it's called What is Fascism? Or Against Fascism. I'll link it in the description of this episode. And it basically makes the point that fascism since the war these people call these people fascists, these people call these people fascists, these are what people say fascism is, but these are other instances in which it didn't have that. Now, he doesn't say fascism doesn't exist, because, I mean, this is a man who got shot in the neck fighting against the fascists in the Spanish Civil War. But he does make the point that it is often used as a weapon as opposed to a label. Ever tried to talk about someone historical who was a fascist, and you sort of have to go, oh, he's a fascist. Now, I don't mean that as an insult. I actually mean he was a ideologically a fascist. Uh, take that as you will. But I think we will we will do a show on that, and it's well worth checking out the Birkin thing. They are releasing stuff on pretty much a daily basis, uh, looking at different people. Um, there have been some quite funny moments. I mean, I think the president of the Trinity Student Union uh, came out and made some statement about people who think their opinions are important, even though they're not. 
you know, sort of how dare these right-wing students say things about free speech and toleration. If anyone is curious why I actually give a shit about student activities at all, is that one of the things the EBI does is student leadership training. And we're actually quite involved in different student groups. And we're always trying to uh, get involved in new student groups and do new projects. So again, if you're a student and you you have anything on campus that you'd like training in or you'd like a talk on or you know, you'd like us to invite someone down or a debate uh, send me an email at uh, garyatgrip.ie and I'll see them probably as quickly as I would if I gave you my Edinburgh Burke Institute uh, email and so we, we kind of get we do a lot of work with students and we talk to students a lot and these things are important to students and other than that I mean the USI has a budget in the millions I think they're about, well, sorry, over a million. I think it ranges from about 1.7 to 1.8. And it's one of the, and that's all effectively forcefully taken from students. Many of whom it's now shown that they're absolutely willing to betray and to harm, or to at least promise to harm, if a Twitter account asks them. And so that's really why I care. We're involved with these people. This impacts upon their lives, and it is actually a great deal of money. Now, it's also a core component of the sort of left-wing training program. People go through the student union, they eventually end up in politics, they end up on boards. They... It's a little part of the machine, and so it's worth paying attention to. But uh, I don't think anyone in the mainstream in the mainstream media will talk about it. I did have someone reach out to me from one of the um, one of the mainstream media, but all he was interested in was if the EBI and the Birkin had any formal links. We don't. The name is just a total accidental thing, the similar names. And uh, if the students were Irish and what they were like. And I you know, just said I won't disclose private information. But I, I don't have a feeling that that article will... I have the feeling that that will be a hatchet job on the Birkin lads. It won't be anything about the USI resignations or the USI activities and... What I should say, both the people have these views that violence is perfectly acceptable if they have decided that people have the wrong political views, and the fact that they are so absolutely brazen about it and confident that nothing will happen to them for effectively wishing harm and, in their mind, acting to ensure harm against people they don't like. And I think that's, that is something that should concern us, because that should not be the case. Anyway... I thought I would make this a much shorter episode. It it ended up not being a shorter episode. Maybe I am actually the problem and not Michael on the timing issue. But we won't tell him that. He'll never know. Anyway, we will talk again tomorrow, uh, on Monday. And until that time, I hope you have a good day. And also, if you're working from home, I hope you haven't started to go stir-crazy yet.